Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message. I'll be doing the Bible reading from Esther chapter 3, 1 to 6, and then we'll do a bunch of other ones from different parts. After these events, King Xerxes honoured Haman, son of Hamadetha, the Agathites. <laughs> I'm so prepared to get these and I have got none of them. Agagite, alleviating him and giving him a seat of honour higher than that of all other nobles. All the royal officials at the, gates ca- at the king's gate knelt down and paid honour to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behaviour would be tolerated, for he had told them he was a Jew. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honour, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Chapter 3, 13 to 15. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king, Haman, sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. Chapter 4, 1 to 5. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on a sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, assigned to her, and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. Chapter 4, 12 to 17. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, nights or day. 
I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Thanks, Jem. Good evening. If you don't know me, my name's Luke. I'm the young adults pastor here at Hills Baptist. And it's great to have you here with us tonight. We're in the book of Esther, which is uh, the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. And so it's interesting that this book, A, is in the Bible, and B, it's very fascinating to see how we can read this book within the context of the Bible, which is all about God, and look at this book and go, okay, where is God? And that's the question that the original author wanted his audience to ponder. And that's the question that as we read this book, we ponder as well. Where is God? And last week, we sort of finished with that question of, can I see God in the midst of my life when things are maybe not going so well? Can I see God at work? And it's a tricky question to to wrestle with and it's sort of what we're doing as we as we go through this incredible book I'm just going to backtrack a little bit because it was pointed out to me last week that I didn't really explain where in the whole story of the Bible Esther sits so I thought that's probably a good thing to start with so the book of Esther chronologically is pretty much the last book of the Old Testament there's a couple of minor prophets after that but as far as the the story of what's happening to the Jews and the nation of Israel, Esther sits right at the end. And it's written by a guy, his audience is the Jews, and, the, and it's to people who are separated from their homeland. So the kingdom of Israel, originally there was 12 tribes. Over time, because they kept on sinning, they kept on worshipping idols, they kept on turning their back on God, God allowed other nations to come and disperse them and separate them and defeat them in battle. And the Jews in the book of Esther are in a place called Babylon and they are there because ultimately they disobeyed God and he'd allowed the Babylonians to come and take them. By the time the book of Esther is written, some of them have gone back home and they've started to re-establish Jerusalem. But all of the Jews everywhere, they are waiting for their Messiah. They are waiting for this promised person who is going to come back and who would, even though they were all separated, he would bring all of them back into his kingdom. So the Jews that this is written to, they're dispersed. They're all over the place. They're not close to their place of worship. They're not necessarily feeling at all close to their God. And so the book is written as this kind of encouragement to them to say, even though it feels like God is not close, even though things don't seem good, even though we're separated and we're far from home, God is still at work. God is still God and we are still God's people. And even in the midst of our separation, God is working towards the ultimate salvation of his people. And so it's written four or 500 years before Jesus comes. 
And, there, and there's this period of time of about 400 years where kind of it seems like nothing's happening, where people are just waiting. And this is kind of the last book before that point. So you've, we've heard from Jem. We've got the, the reading for today. So we're looking at Esther 3 and 4. So we're introduced to the main, I'd call him the bad guy, the antagonist of our story. His name is Hey Man. Turn to the person next to you and say, Hey Man. <laughs> there it is. So Hey Man is, uh, he's introduced as, he's called Hey Man the Agagite. And just a little, little history lesson. That term Agagite, it refers to an enemy of Israel. And throughout the Bible, if you see that term, you know, oh, that's an enemy of the Jews. So, Haman, he's the villain. Mordecai, Esther's cousin who raised her, won't bow to him. And he says, well, since you won't bow to me, I'm going to wrangle away to set in place a law that means not just you, but your whole people group are going to be destroyed. He's not a very nice man. So we're going to draw three things out of our story tonight. So if you're taking notes, here are your three headings. The first one, we're going to talk about power. The second thing we're going to talk about is apathy. And the third thing we're going to talk about is timing. When I was 18, my grandpa gave me a car, just gave it to me. Um, And it wasn't like, you know, it was a, uh, it was a 1996 Ford Mondeo station wagon it had about 300,000 k's on the clock already because he used it to tow a caravan which you're not supposed to really do with a station wagon but he went to town on it um you know he he gave it to me he wrote the value as zero so I didn't have to pay stamp duty which was very appreciated um and I was I was stoked before that time I'd had to share a car with my sister but this this was sort of my dream it was like, because it was a station wagon, I could put lots of stuff in it, didn't have to clean it for ages because you just keep pushing things back and it just kind of piles up and that's not an issue. Um, and it had a V6, which was kind of cool. I don't know, I thought it was. Um, and what I used to do in that car, and again, this is, this is me being descriptive, not prescriptive. So what I used to do in that car was I'd cruise around in it, see how fast it would go, um, fairly fast it turns out. Uh, And I wouldn't really drive very safely. I was also 18. Um, Hands up if you were emotionally mature and very good at risk assessment when you were 18. Yep. About seven girls. And that's that's about right. I was not. Um, That took a while to kick in. And so I used to not necessarily drive it very safely. And there was one night where um, I was driving this car and I was on dirt roads coming back home, sort of from Callington to Murray Bridge. Um, And I was kind of, you know, an experienced driver would have been able to do what I wanted to do, um, which was, you know, just go nicely through the curves, move a little bit, but not too much. Um, Anyway, I hit a corner, I started sliding, so I overcorrected, hit a soft patch on the other side of the road. The car spins out um, and I crash straight into a big gum tree. That didn't move. <laughs> the car sort of bounced down the road a bit and I, I woke up. So it knocked me out very momentarily. And I woke up 
we were down the road. The airbag had gone off, which is what it knocked me out, and the, the, the passenger side of the car was just crumpled. And I had in my hands with that car more power than I had maturity to know what to do with. I was very, I guess, fortunate would be the right word to walk out of that. I was, like, I was fine. If I'd had a passenger, they wouldn't have been. Um, so I thank God that I didn't because that would be a, a load to walk through life with. But the thing was, like, I thought I could manage this, but it was too much power for me. And I think the wrong kind of power in the wrong hands can do a lot of damage. And I was just lucky that, I, that the power that I had in my hands then didn't damage someone else. But what we can see and what we see again and again in this story of Esther is people who have the wrong kind of power and they have too much of it, and they do a lot of damage with it. One of the commentators on Esther that I've been reading, a lady named Karen Jobes, says that in the story of Esther, when there's this maniacal need, and I like the word maniacal, need for honor and respect, when that's coupled with absolute power, the result is oppression and injustice. So what we see is when the wrong kind of people have the wrong kind of power, others get oppressed. And so within the book of Esther, we see again and again. So in chapters 1 or 2, we saw that Xerxes used his power to uh, dehumanize his wife, to round up teenage girls so that he could choose someone to marry. And Haman is now using his power to essentially put in place a law to commit genocide against the Jews. That, that's, that's what he's trying to do here. And power is a really interesting thing. And the Bible talks about power a lot. And the church, as an institution, not as the body of Christ, but as people who might use the name of Christ to do the wrong thing, the church has, in different times, used its power to harm. The church has harmed the poor, it's harmed minorities, it's harmed women and children. And that's not the kind of power that Jesus is talking about. That's not the kind of power that the New Testament is actually saying that where to use. So power that harms is sinful. But the Bible talks about it. And Jesus talks about it. And in the New Testament, in Ephesians, in the series we've just read, Paul prays for the Ephesians so that they would have power. But what is that power for? It's the power to know how much they are loved by God. That's the kind of power that Paul's talking about. He says in Romans that the power that raised Christ from the dead lives in us. This power from God that brings life from dead things. And at the beginning of Acts, Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So when we talk about power as Christians, we need to be very careful that we're talking about that kind of power, power that we would be empowered to be a witness of Jesus, 
in the places that we go. Power that we could understand God's love because what happens when someone understands how much God loves them? It causes them to love others. So again and again, as I read this story of Esther and I see the way that these powerful men in that time acted, I'm just, it's so contrasting with how our king, Jesus, uses his power. The power that Jesus wields is to save others. So Haman could not handle one person refusing to bow. And yet Jesus on the cross bowed his head in death for the salvation of the world. So as we look back on this Old Testament story, we just see this is what man does, but that's not what our Jesus does. And in John 3:16 and 17, It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So the power that Jesus has is the power to save, the power to bring life. And that's the kind of power as Christians that we've actually been given. So anytime someone might use the name of Christ to harm or to use their power to oppress or cause injustice, that is not Jesus at work. Let's just be clear about that. So we have this powerful man, Haman. He hates the Jews because Mordecai won't bow to him. And there was this line... At the, it's right at the end of chapter 3. It's the last verse. And it kind of, it's been like a bit of an earworm this week. It's just been eating away at me. Like, what is in this? And it says, The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. So it's like, this is the decree that the Jews are going to be destroyed. The king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was bewildered. And I just, I was like, at this picture of these two men, self-satisfied, job well done. We've got the law enacted. Let's sit down. Let's have a, a cup of tea or a glass of wine or whatever it was. And so they're sitting there in their palace, you know, drinking while the world around them is in like disarray. Like people are shocked. They're confused. Because the way that that law was to be carried out was that if you've, if you've got Jews that live next door to you, you as a Babylonian person, you have to kill them. It wasn't like the army was going to come in and do it. It's like, oh, all the citizens of Babylon, you get to kill the Jews on, on this specific day. Like they're like, what is going on? And the king and Haman are sitting there having a drink. I don't think they could have cared less about their subjects. And it's in real contrast to the way that the Jews react, which is to put on, they tear their clothes, they put on sackcloth, they put on ashes, and they fast. And they weep. It describes what Mordecai is doing. It says, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, went out into the midst of the city and cried out with a loud and bitter cry. 
So while the king and Haman were apathetic to the plight of the Jews, the Jews themselves responded. They were mourning. They were fasting. They were lamenting. They were crying out. They were, you know, it doesn't say they were who they were crying out to, but we know they were crying out to God for their salvation. And as I kind of reflected on this little verse, this word that just kept coming back to me was apathy. Because I realized as I read this verse that sometimes I do what Haman and Xerxes did. And I sit in my comfortable home doing what I want to do. And I switch my mind off to the reality that there is a world going to destruction. And I wonder, church, if sometimes in this story we are more like Haman and Xerxes than we would like to admit. I wonder perhaps if we are more apathetic than compassionate. And once again, I'm just struck by the contrast between this Persian king and our King Jesus, who when the world was doomed to destruction, put on flesh, came amongst the people he created, even to the point of the people he created killing him on a cross, knowing full well that he had every ounce of power needed if he wanted to get off that cross to call down the armies of heaven to wipe out everyone who was harming him mocking him the very creation the very people that he made turning their backs on him and yet he didn't and we have a calling to be like jesus in the way that we deal with a dark world. You don't need me to tell you that the world can be a very grim place. It can be very unfair. And Jesus died on the cross and was raised to life so that we could know him, so that we would know his father, and so that we would have a hope that says, yes, this world kind of sucks sometimes. Yes, in this life I will have trouble, but my hope is not in what I see. My hope is not in what is here. My hope is in Jesus, who is coming back, who is going to restore creation, who is going to remake things, who is going to bring us into his eternal home with him. And I think sometimes we can forget, especially those of us who are Christians, we can forget what it's like for those who don't have that hope. And sometimes as Christians, I think we forget that we should have that hope. We fix our eyes not on Jesus, but we fix our eyes on what's in front of us a lot of the time, what's around us what we're struggling with. But I call you tonight, look up, look to Jesus. Don't be so caught up in what's happening 
right in front of you or around you. But look to him. Don't be like Haman. Don't be like Xerxes, who sat and had a drink while the city was in chaos. This isn't a call to work. This is a call to Christ, to follow him and to work with him because Jesus is much more desperate for your friends and your family to be saved than you even are. And he loves them more than you do. And he died for them. So let's catch a hold of that. Let's not forget that. Let's not get so comfortable in our church seats at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night that we forget that there is a world who don't know him, who don't know our Savior. Yeah? So I've been really challenged by that this week, and I'm just passing that challenge forward. (laughs) It should bother us that that's the state of the world. Tim Keller says that the Christian life will be both more joyful and more sorrowful. And so there's a godly sorrow in us that should well up and move us to action, not to complacency. Now, I believe in a God who is in control. I believe in a God who has a plan, who is omnipotent, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient. He's all-powerful, he's always present, and he is all-knowing. And I believe that our God directs our steps, and I also believe that we uh, have free will, (laughs) but in that free will, he knows what we're going to do, so have fun with that. God knows where you are. In fact, we could say that you are where you are. God knew you would be there. And maybe it's part of his plan that you were there. And Mordecai says to Esther, so you remember Esther was a Jew, but she'd kept it hidden. So in Esther chapter 1 or 2, Esther goes into the harem. She becomes queen because the king loved her the most. And he says, all right, Esther, you're queen now. But she's kept the fact that she's a Jew hidden. And this law's just been passed. All the Jews are to be destroyed. And Mordecai, is, he's weeping, he's lamenting at the city gate for the destruction. Esther hears that he's doing that. And she's like, sends her servants to say like, Mordecai, and sends them with clothes as if to say, Mordecai, like, what are you doing? Put your clothes on. You're making a scene. This is not appropriate. People know we're related. And he says, Esther, have you not heard we're about to be destroyed. And he says to her, do not think that because you are in the king's house that you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. So Mordecai, again, he has this hope that ultimately the Jews will be restored because they're waiting for a Messiah who will save them. So that's his, that's his hope. He trusts that, that things will work out. But he says to Esther, and who knows that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. The way he says it's interesting. Who knows? Maybe that's why you're the queen. 
Who knows? Maybe you are in your workplace for this time. Who knows? Maybe you were born into the family you were born into for this time. Who knows? Maybe you're here at Hills Baptist for this time. Esther was there without a choice. We know that. But Mordecai says, well, maybe this is why. And sometimes we find ourselves in situations and we kind of look back and go, I don't even really know how I got here. Or we get put in places that are beyond our control. Maybe it's for such a time as this. Maybe we look at our life and we feel deeply unsatisfied with the way things are or the way things have turned out. And it's not perhaps the future that we would have mapped out for ourselves if someone asked us. You know, you know, in school when people say, like, what do you want to do when you're older? And you have to make these, like, plans. And no one follows them, so don't worry. If you're 21 and you're having a midlife crisis, it's okay. You'll change jobs and God's still good. It's okay. It's okay. But, but maybe... You're one of those people and you feel like, man, like, I feel like I'm going nowhere. Maybe you are where you are for such a time as this. Maybe you're asking the wrong questions. Maybe instead of saying, what's next? You can ask, God, what do I do now? What do I do in the place that I am? What do I do in this job that I hate? How do I love these people that you love that I'm finding really, really hard to love? Mordecai is not just talking to Esther about her own situation here. He's drawing her into something bigger. That her life is not just about her. That her life might be about more than just her, that it's about other people, that she's in her position maybe to save some people. Often our dissatisfaction with life comes from this place of believing that our life is about us. Often our dissatisfaction comes from this belief that life will work out and it will be good and it will be amazing and we'll love every aspect of it. But that's not what the Bible actually says. Jesus says to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart for I have overcome the world. So Esther, she says back to Mordecai, like he hasn't, the king hasn't invited me in for 30 days, you can't just go into the king's presence. If you go into that king's presence, you die. That's how it works. You can't just roll in. Not a very good marriage, I would think. But, but so she says, like, Mordecai, I haven't been invited in for 30 days. Can you and everyone get all the Jews, and I'm going to do this as well. We're going to fast. We're not going to have food or drink. Three days, nothing. And then I'm going to go in. And she says this, if I perish... I perish. Oh. She's willing to pay whatever price. This is a brave young woman. So this is about seven years after um, she's become the queen. So she's early 20s. 
25 probably at most. She's a young woman in a dangerous situation. She either gets killed in a genocide or she gets killed because, her husband, because she walks into her husband's presence. And she's willing to say, if I perish, I perish. I think some of you need to hear this tonight, that God can use you where you are. You're not a Persian queen. We've covered that. You know that, right? (laughs) But God can use you where you are. Do you believe that? God is not waiting for you to figure it out. He's not waiting for you to get to the next thing. He's with you now. You are where you are for such a time as this. So God can use you where you are. And it's, it's also, like, it's not just about you. It wasn't just about Esther. It's actually about joining in for us with Jesus in the work that he is doing. He came in the world, came to the world to save it. And then he called his disciples to follow him. And so our life is not just about us. Our life is about what Christ would do in us for others. And there's a reality that there are people who are headed to destruction. And maybe you are someone who can point them to the person who can save them. We don't save, but we know the one who does. And we point people to him. Each generation, I believe, is born into their time to handle what the world is doing at that particular time. So you are equipped, whether you know it or not. God has put you in the world now. He didn't put you in it in 1871. He put you in it now to be Christ's witnesses today. But we don't do it alone. So Esther, Mordecai, the Jews, they all fasted. They all waited for three days together for this moment of salvation to come. We don't do it alone. We do it in community. So we stand together as Christians to spur each other on, to move towards God's salvation. In the same way that they fasted and waited for three days. Jesus' disciples were waiting three days until he came out of that tomb, until he came out alive, resurrected, and salvation had come. So as we close, three things. Use your God-given power and influence to be a witness to Christ, to bring his kingdom of light to dark places. Number two, defeat apathy with compassion. If you wake up in the morning tomorrow and it gets to 2 p.m. and you still haven't done anything and you're just feeling like, Bleh, go down to the petrol station, wait for someone to fill up their car and then pay for their petrol. And you'll feel a little bit better. And you catch a little bit of a a glimpse of generosity. If you find that you don't have anything to do, then go and volunteer. Reach out. As Christians, we're called to move. 
Jesus went to the people that needed him. Which means we get to join him in going to the people that need him. Not waiting for them to just appear in front of us. And finally, I do believe, even though those words were written a very long time ago, and it's a cousin talking to a cousin saying, who knows, maybe you're here for such a time as this. I believe that we can say that to each other here tonight and say, well, who knows? Maybe you are where you are for such a time as this. Maybe you are in the place that you are because God has something that you can do. Let's pray. Father God, we just thank you for your word. We thank you that it's true. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much that you love us. Lord, we thank you that it is your plan and it is your purpose that people would know you. And in your wisdom and in your grace, you've allowed us to join you in showing the world how good you are. So Jesus, I just pray that tonight you would set a fire in our hearts. That you would help us to be moved with compassion as you were. Lord, I pray that we would use the power that we have for good to help and not to harm. And Lord God, I just pray that if there's any scrap of apathy in us, that you would break it down. Lord, I don't want to be apathetic. And Lord, I pray that none of us would choose that. So Jesus, have your way in this place tonight. Amen. So um, as we said earlier, we, we would love to pray with anyone who would like prayer, whether it's to do with what I've talked about tonight or anything that's going on in your life. We would love to pray with you. So we generally have people in that back corner there, uh, myself and, and Nick, the pastors, and we also have some elders around that if there's stuff going on and you just would like someone else to stand with you and say, God, can we help? Then we'll do that. And I, and I, do, and I do that because I believe that God shows up and I believe that Jesus works and that he hears our prayers and that he responds to us he died for our freedom and so if you're here tonight and you're feeling heavy laden and bogged down you didn't even hear anything I said because you're just so overwhelmed by the stuff that's happening in your life then let us pray for you because we believe in a God who breaks chains who heals and who brings freedom to things that are not free. So as we, as we sing, then feel free to come over there. We'll pray for you um, and then we'll close the service there. Welcome to the Hills Baptist Podcast. We're so glad you're joining us as we see Jesus glorified, lives transformed and hope revealed in the Adelaide Hills and beyond. We hope you enjoy this message.